Hello, and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm your host, Eric Sintel, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It may seem very odd to talk about the resurrection of Jesus in the middle of December, when we're usually very focused on the birth of Jesus. For the last several years, though, the birth of Jesus has become super meaningful to me because it sets in motion, obviously, Jesus' life and his ministry and his eventual death and resurrection. In me, the resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity, but it's also the cornerstone of my personal faith. You know, if I had to really boil it down very simply, I have two major anchors to my faith. One being the fact that existence exists. I can't fathom the universe and existence as we know it being here apart from some kind of creator God or creator being. Um, I, I just can't. To me, it takes more faith to believe that all of this is just here for no rhyme or reason than to believe that there's a God who's just there, who then created all of this, you know? So to me, um, the fact that we're here at all <laughs> is an anchor to faith in God. My second anchor would be the resurrection, because no matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what happens to us in the afterlife, we have the hope of a bodily resurrection in Jesus. So to me, you know, I think sometimes in Christianity, we focus so much on the death of Christ that we de-emphasize the resurrection of Christ. You know, we focus so much on the uh, death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we talk so much about God taking our place and enabling the forgiveness of our sins or reconciling us to God, we focus so much on that that we forget a little bit about the resurrection. Had Jesus not come back, he would have been one of many failed messiahs. Um, the theologian and historian and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, very well-respected, probably the most respected, uh, prominent New Testament theologian in the world today. Um, N.T. Wright has said that there were many different young charismatic Jews claiming to be the Messiah um, around the time of, you know, 1st and 2nd century BC and 1st and 2nd century AD. Um, one person after another claimed to be the Messiah who was going to cast out Rome. And had Jesus not resurrected, he would have been just one more failed Messiah, one more person claiming to be the Messiah, who clearly wasn't because the, the Romans arrested, tortured, and executed him. But they did all that, and he came back. And that was Jesus announcing, God announcing to the world, yes, in fact, I am the Christ, and yes, in fact, I am the Messiah, uh, just not the kind of Messiah you thought I was going to be. And so we have in the resurrection our ultimate hope. Advent um, is a time of hope and preparation and peace and love 
and joy. Um, those are the, the Sundays of Advent. Those are the candles and wreath of Advent. Um, if you're coming from a Methodist background or, or some kind of liturgical background where they, you know, practice that, that sort of um, worship service. You know, I come from a Baptist background growing up and um, I've attended some non-denominational non churches. And, you know, it's really only in those mainline Protestant denominations that we have this practice of lighting, you know, specific candles on specific Sundays and reading a scripture to go along with that theme of hope, love, peace, or joy. Um, and so, you know, hope comes first. And I think that's because resurrection set in motion by the birth of Jesus is our hope. Hope allows us to prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus and to be aware that eventually Jesus is going to die, but he comes back. Um, the resurrection creates our hope that allows us to prepare, but also to have peace and joy and love and to extend that and express that as love toward God, toward others, and even toward ourselves, because we can be kind of hard on ourselves, can't we? Um, I know the holidays can be a very stressful, difficult time for many people for many different reasons, but remember the resurrection. The resurrection is our hope. It is the anchor to Christianity and to our faith. So why do we believe in the resurrection? Well, I believe in the resurrection partly as a matter of faith, partly as a historical fact. Um, and there are many different reasons that you could point to you know, as a historian to say, yeah, I think the resurrection did actually happen. This miracle did happen. There are historical reasons you could point to to say, no, it didn't. Um, there is a historian, uh, I have yet to read the book, but I'm aware of a historian who wrote a book and trying to explore that. And his basic conclusion was, as a historian, I don't know. <laughs> There's evidence for it, evidence against it, and the historical record and looking at it and analyzing it as a historian. This person, this historian is a Christian. So he said, as a person of faith and as a matter of faith, yes, I believe the resurrection happened. But if I'm honest as a historian, you know, there's evidence for it and evidence against it. Well, I personally, Eric Santel, believe in the resurrection um, as historical fact, because in the gospels, we see the apostles, the earliest disciples, transition from hiding in locked houses, fearful of the Jewish and Roman authorities, to boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and Messiah. That's a dramatic transformation, right? I mean, remember, they expected Jesus to be this military political Messiah who was going to um, kick out the Romans, ideally with a lot of vengeful bloodshed and righteous retribution, and instead, the Romans arrested, tortured, and crucified him. So for three days, they're sitting around thinking, holy cow, what did we, what were we thinking? What did we give our lives to? What did we stake our entire reputations on? Our lives are over. You know, how, who's going to hire us for anything? Who's going to buy fish from us? Who, you know, how, and that's assuming that we survive the next few months and don't get rounded up and, and executed or ran out of town. Um, you know, our lives are over because we gave our lives to this leader 
who said he was the Messiah, and we believed he was the Messiah. And he did all these miraculous healings and signs and wonders. And he taught with such insight and authority. And all of that was, all of that was wrong because he got killed. And then they start going out and proclaiming, actually, no, yes, he is the Messiah. He is everything he claimed to be. And we will say this in front of the Sanhedrin. We will say this to the authorities and we will say this publicly and we don't care what happens to us. How did that shift, that dramatic transformation happen? Something had to occur to cause that, right? Well, I believe that they saw Jesus. Um, I believe that what the Gospels record about Jesus appearing to those disciples, that must have actually happened. That's not propaganda from the biblical authors. That is the earliest generation of Christians passing this uh, tradition down, this story down of what actually happened to them, what they actually experienced, and then it getting written down in the Gospels. Now, besides the Gospels, besides the transformation of the apostles. I mean, we could point to other historical evidence like the nature of Roman crucifixion. Um, I have heard it claimed that as soon as a man or woman's back touched the beam of the cross, they were considered legally dead because once you touch the beam of the cross um, and once you were put on the cross, you weren't coming down, <laughs> like that was it. Um, and it's physically impossible to survive uh, being on the cross if you're not taken down before you suffocate. You know, we, um, I mean, think about the massive trauma of being nailed to something. I mean, that could cause shock, um, but also you're hanging there and putting pressure against your lungs and you can't breathe and you have to lift yourself up to relieve that pressure and be able to breathe. And uh, eventually your body just wears out. You can't keep doing that over and over again for days on end, and you suffocate hung from the cross. Um, in the Gospels, we're told also that Jesus' side is pierced, that blood and water comes out. Um, so he probably had some kind of cardiac event, some kind of heart attack as well. Um, we have lots of historical evidence, you know, both in the Gospels and in what we know about Roman crucifixion from other sources to say, well, yeah, Jesus definitely died. Um, and then we have the Gospels to point to, to provide us with that evidence that Jesus then came back. Now, I really wish that the Gospels filled in some of the gaps, some of the details, like, Jesus, uh, what exactly have you been doing for the last three or four days? <laughs> you know, what exactly has your experience been over the past few days? You know, were you asleep? Were you just, did you not have an experience? Um, and now you're here, resurrected, experiencing again? Um, or were you up in your, up in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father? Um, there is one gospel that, that mentions that and says that other gospels do not. So we, you know, we aren't as clear as I would like to be. Um, we're even less clear about Lazarus. So we have Jesus dying and resurrecting. And I believe that happened. Um, again, because of the transformation of the apostles, and I could even, you know, point to some historical um, evidence that you might describe as um, circumstantial evidence, perhaps. 
but we also have in the Gospels the account of Lazarus. So um, in this account, okay, this is a really interesting story. Jesus is not anywhere nearby Lazarus in Judea and Jerusalem. He hears that Lazarus is sick, but he doesn't immediately go there. When he does decide to go there, his disciples are like, but wait a minute, Jesus, don't you remember the Jews tried to stone you just not that long ago? And then Thomas actually says, well, let's go with them. He's going to uh, see Lazarus. I guess let's go with him um, so that we may die with him. So why did Jesus not go to Lazarus? Well, apparently um, there was some fear that the Jews were going to um, gather him and his disciples up and kill them if they got too close at that time. Things were not, you know, the, they, things were riled up, so to speak. But Jesus goes there anyway. Um, and there's even a large group of Jews from Jerusalem who have gone to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha. So then um, Martha comes to Jesus, meets him outside and says, you know, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. This is in John chapter, uh, chapter 11. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So this is an important point. Um, so we've seen in the Gospels and in the historical record that um, certain Jews did not believe in the bodily resurrection. The Sadducees, for example, did not believe in a resurrection. And they said uh, to Jesus, you know, you, you imagine you have this woman who uh, gets married but doesn't have any children. According to the law of Moses, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, his brother needs to marry that woman and have children with her to carry on the brother's line. Um, that's the law of Moses. And then the second brother who marries her, he dies and also doesn't give her children. So then the third brother marries the fourth, the fifth, and they go through seven brothers, right? And so these seven different brothers marry this woman and all seven of them die. And then the woman dies and none of them ever had children. Which of these men will be her husband at the resurrection? You know, so the Sadducees are asking this of Jesus, not because they actually want to know the answer, but because they're, they devised this thought experiment to portray the resurrection as a ridiculous notion. They don't believe in the resurrection. So here's this stupid, ridiculous scenario. Um, and you can't really come up with a clear, convincing, logical answer to it. Um, because, and that's going to prove the resurrection is just ridiculous, and therefore it's not a thing. Jesus answers them and says, you are silly, um, because at the resurrection, there's not going to be marriage like that. Um, and you are ignoring your own scriptures, your own tradition. You know, don't you remember that when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses asked, who are you? <laughs> and God answers, yeah, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus adds to that when he's talking to the Sadducees, he says, uh, our God is the God of the living, not of the dead. That's a really powerful claim. You know, Jesus is claiming, first of all, you know, your silly example here doesn't even make sense because at the resurrection, we're not going to have that kind of thing going on. We're not going to have marriage and pairing up like that. Um, and second, you know, don't you remember that God 
is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. Those people who were dead long before Moses and definitely dead long, long before Jesus and the Sadducees, those people are alive right now. And God is the, their God, God of the living, not of the dead. So he's making this claim and revealing this spiritual knowledge about the resurrection and about uh, eternal life. So um, Martha, being Jesus's disciple and follower, believes in the resurrection, right? Um, and other Jews, different sects and groups of Jews, you know, believe in the resurrection. So, you know, we tend to think of Jews as, um, as all the same, you know, and especially ancient Jews of all being this way and all having the same exact beliefs. But they had different uh, groups, just like we have different denominations. So Martha and Jesus and, and, their, and that group, they believe in the resurrection. So Martha has this hope, this faith, that no matter what happened to Lazarus in this world, he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus puts a twist on that. This is in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. You know, as I read this, I'm reminded of N.T. Wright's argument that eternal life begins now. It doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you accept Jesus Christ. So then the story of Lazarus continues. Mary comes out. Uh, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man had kept this, have kept this man from dying? Okay, so then Jesus tells them, we'll take away the stone. And uh, Martha says, but wait, there's going to be a bad odor. He's been in there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And Jesus prays out loud and even says, you know, uh, I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you, God, sent me here. And then Lazarus comes out. The dead man came out with his his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And the story ends there. I have always wanted to know more. <laughs> Lazarus, what exactly uh, was going on? You know, what did you experience? What happened to you? Or what did you perceive happening during those four days? For that matter, you know, hey, Jesus, uh, you know, I, I see the marks of the cross of the nails and the spear in your side and uh yes here's some fish you know since you asked for something to eat here's some fish to eat but uh so what was going on for those three or four days you were in the tomb huh i'd like to know you know what were you experiencing then you know uh were you, what what was going on you know the gospels don't give us those details at least not as clearly or consistently as i would certainly like um, in John chapter 20, um, Mary Magdalene 
thinks that she sees the gardener. <laughs> she mistakes Jesus for the resurrected Jesus for the gardener at the tomb. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. You know, so she shows up and the tomb is empty and she thinks someone's taken Jesus' body. And she sees, um, you know, these angels who ask her, you know, I'm sorry, I, yeah, Mary. She, these angels ask her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my word away and I don't know where they put him. And then she turns around and sees Jesus standing there, but she, she thinks he's the gardener and asks him, where is he? And then Jesus said to her, Mary, and then she realizes who he is. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Right, so we get this indication in John that whatever happened to Jesus in those days in the tomb, um, he has not yet returned to God. And then um, the Gospel of Luke ends with the, the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And, you know, we tend to picture that as maybe Jesus literally flying up into the sky or, or something like that. I mean, it could have happened any number of ways. You know, maybe he just disappears. Um, we don't know because the Gospels don't give us that level of detail. Um, so in one Gospel, it's I have not yet returned to my father. Okay, doesn't tell us much what he did or did not do. Um, and then we get this idea of an ascension to the heaven in one gospel, but not the others. And so the gospels just don't give us enough clarity or consistency of detail to, to make any kind of educated guesses about what Jesus experienced in the tomb. And they don't tell us what Lazarus experienced in his tomb. And so we have you know, this, to me, a very frustrating situation <laughs> where I would really like to know more. Um, but ultimately, what we do know is that Jesus appears before multiple groups of disciples in multiple places. For lack of a better word, Jesus seems to teleport. He just appears in the middle of crowded locked rooms. He appears to these two travelers on the road to Emmaus. Um, he appears to several different groups. You know, remember, Jesus' followers, his disciples, are hiding out in fear of the authorities. And they've locked the doors and shut the windows. And so there shouldn't be any way that a person could just show up there uninvited, unannounced, unknown, with that, or without breaking an entry. And yet that's exactly what the Gospels depict as happening. Jesus just appears. Um, and he appears multiple places and multiple times to multiple groups. Um, when he does appear, he shows them his scars and the, the marks of the crucifixion. He shows them, you know, that I have a body. Um, he, they think he is a ghost at first. He's like, no, I'm not a ghost. I have a body. Check it out. Um, he asks for food to eat and they give it to him and he eats it. So what we know about the bodily resurrection is that it is in fact bodily it's you're not a spirit only you're not a ghost but you have a a body a body that seems to bear whatever happened in our lives you know had jesus lived to be 75 would he have resurrected as a 75 year old probably based on what we have in the gospels in front of us um now hopefully when we resurrect um 
after a good long life. We don't have bad backs and bad eyesight and all that. Hopefully we're restored and renewed. And the uh, book of Revelation depicts not a escape into heaven where souls just rapture out and, and go out of this earth into heaven. Revelation depicts a renewal of creation in which heaven and earth become one and the same. And so in that renewal, I hope that my back won't hurt and my eyesight will be better, you know, things like that, no matter how long I live. Okay, so based just on the scriptures, if I'm being honest, it really seems possible, based only on what we see in the Gospels, that when we die, we probably just don't have any kind of conscious experience or awareness because we get just this barest hint that you know Jesus hasn't returned to his father yet um, but he doesn't tell us what he was doing before he shows up and gets mistaken as the gardener um, we don't get any details about what Lazarus experienced or was aware of during his time in the tomb but we don't have only the Gospels. We don't have only Scripture. We also have near-death experiences. Um, so there's a researcher um, named Bruce Grayson, and he wrote this uh, article in Newsweek, um, I Study NDEs, Near-Death Experiences. What I've learned about near-death experiences changed my life. And so he describes, you know, encountering someone who could not have been aware of him having a conversation with someone else about her case, about her medical care. Um, she was unconscious and he went 50 feet down the hall and talked to someone in a completely different room. The next day, she knew about that conversation. She knew what he had been wearing, what the other person had been wearing, what they talked about. Um, and then he writes, Bruce Grayson writes, you know, three, lays, three years later, um, he began to work with uh, Dr. Raymond Moody. Um, and Raymond Moody had observed, you know, wrote a book um, about uh, what he observed in 50 patients who had been brought back from the brink of death. So talking with Raymond, reading this book, you know, helped him to make sense of that patient's experience and what happened. Uh, when this patient started reporting to him things that this patient could not have possibly known. And so uh, Bruce Grayson writes, as a scientist, it seemed intellectually dishonest to pretend these things didn't happen. And I decided the only way to understand these experiences was to study them in depth. My quest to find a logical explanation for NDEs, near-death experiences, led me into a half century of research that took me into territory I never could have imagined. And in this article, he goes on to describe interviewing thousands of people who were brought back from the threshold of death, or in some cases actually pronounced dead, and then brought back. And, you know, he acknowledges it's impossible to say for certain what happens when we die, but he has heard hundreds of accounts of people claiming to have left their physical bodies and seeing things they should not have been able to see while they were unconscious, right? So the gospels don't tell us Lazarus or Jesus for that matter, you know, saw things or did things that they should not have been able to see or do. 
while they were in the tombs. But we have all these examples of near-death experiences, including examples studied by scientists. And Bruce Grayson actually introduces this article saying that he grew up in a non-religious household. He was not a religious person. And it was studying these near-death experiences that he, you know, for, as a scientist, as a medical professional, that led him to think, okay, there must be something more to our uh, existence, our reality, than what we see in the physical world. So uh, I'm quoting from Bruce Grayson's article again. One example was a truck driver who said that during quadruple bypass surgery, he rose above the operating room and saw his surgeon flapping his arms as if he was trying to fly. Convinced such an absurd vision had to be an hallucination, I asked the man's permission to speak with his surgeon, and to my astonishment, the surgeon corroborated the story, explaining that he had placed his palms on his chest to avoid touching anything, not in the sterile operating field, and pointed out things to his assistants with his elbows rather than his fingers. And then Grayson continues, um, As a psychiatrist, the most impressive feature of these NDE, NDEs is their effects on people's lives. Typically, people I have spoken with return from NDEs with permanent changes to attitudes, beliefs, values, and behavior. They become less interested in worldly things and more interested in non-physical things, in caring, compassion, and altruism. I have not seen that they become more religious, but I've noticed that they often become more aware of the spiritual aspects of life. Okay, and so, he is again you know studying this as a scientist and coming to this conclusion that there must be something right and he and this is an article he wrote in newsweek but he also published a book after in which he shares more information from these thousands of interviews and hundreds of interviews um there also are researchers who try to research reincarnation um, and they study, um, they talk to people who claim to have knowledge of past lives and they try really hard to figure out, okay, is there any way that some of this knowledge of past lives could have been uh, inadvertently or unintentionally or unknowingly passed down from parents or grandparents or great-grandparents? Same thing, by the way, with NDEs, you know, they the researchers who really study NDEs in a very rigorous way try really hard to make sure there's no possible way that this person could have uh, heard this or learned this from some other source and just forgotten about it or not realized it. And there are, of course, cases where it turns out, yeah, you know, they set mentioned grandpa in front of the kid at some point. And then they forgot about it. And that's how the kid knows about grandpa. It's not that the kid had a near-death experience and a spiritual experience. But there are lots of cases where, no, they're absolutely sure. <laughs> they, have, they have tried as best they can to figure out, did somebody mention grandpa who died before this kid uh, was born? And did they mention these specific details about grandpa? And they confirm, no, they're, they're confident that no one mentioned grandpa or these exp uh, details about grandpa. No one mentioned, you know, this great grandparent or something or any details about that person. And so to the best of our knowledge and experience, our scientific knowledge and experience, 
these people who report experiencing things while dead, clinically dead or on the brink of death, or these people who report knowledge of past lives, um, they do not appear to have gotten that knowledge or information from any other source, any people in their lives or any um, information in their lives. The only source for that seems to be this spirit out-of-body experience. So, who can say for certain what happens after we die? No one. <laughs> um, but we do have some evidence that near-death experiences do happen. And people do come back reporting experiences. Now, the skeptics will say, oh, yeah, that's just your brain hallucinating. But we have examples where the part of the brain that would produce such a hallucination is dead. Like that part of the brain is gone. It's not there. And then people come back from death, from death, they're uh, resuscitated, and they still report these experiences. Um, there's one person in particular, um, Andrew Newberg, who was a neuroscientist, and he died, um, had a near-death experience. They brought him back, and he had all these medical records and brain scans, and he could say, as a neuroscientist, and other neuroscientists confirmed this, that's the part of the brain that's responsible for the kind of dreamlike hallucination that skeptics say is all that's going on when people report these experiences. That part of my brain was not operational. It was gone. I still had this experience. Right? And so we have the research and the scientific and medical research to show us our lives and our experiences don't end when our bodies die. That there is something else after life. That our, uh, death, our death is a transition. It is not the end. And then the Gospels show us that whatever transitory, temporary, uh, whatever state we're in after death is temporary. It's transitory because then we have a bodily resurrection to look forward to. So this to me is an anchor of my faith and it's an anchor of hope because no matter what happens to us in this world, in this life, no, what, no matter what happens to our loved ones in this world, in this life, we know from near-death experiences and the rigorous research into them and the reports that people have when they come back, even the brain scans of people when they come before and after they come back, we have that evidence to point to to show us that we're not just our bodies, that we have a spirit that lives on, that experiences that is aware, that's conscious. And then in the Gospels, we have the evidence that eventually that spirit comes back in a bodily resurrection, a renewal of heaven and earth in which heaven and earth are one and the same. Jesus is depicted as teleporting. He's depicted as having a body with scars and, and being hungry and wanting to eat. So we have some sense of what that will look like. Um, I say Jesus teleports, it could be that those are just the times and places and moments in which heaven and Jesus' spirit are able to break through into earth, into physical material creation. 
um, the Gospels, the Bible as a whole, depicts these times and places where uh, heaven or God is especially close to earth and his people and his creation. You know, this spot is sacred, not just because we said it is, but because this seems to be a hot spot, so to speak, for God's presence. You know, when miracles happen, when Jesus performs miracles, when Paul or Peter perform miracles, those can be viewed as times in which heaven and earth become one for a moment. Those could be viewed as times where heaven breaks into earth, when God's presence and power is able to become more present than it normally is or typically is. So I know this is getting pretty uh, heady and metaphysical, but that's the best I can do to try to make sense of this hope of the resurrection. And the more I think about it and contemplate it, and the more I think about it as, uh, as a way of heaven breaking into earth and foreshadowing the ultimate renewal of the heavens and earth and the ultimate renewal of creation where heaven and earth become one and the same, the more I contemplate that and think about that, the stronger my hope becomes. And as we celebrate the birth of Jesus this Christmas, let's also remember that that birth is important and significant, not because Jesus died, but because Jesus resurrected. Because this birth sets in motion all that follows, his life, his ministry, his death, and most importantly, his resurrection. And the nature of that resurrection gives us hope and what to, an idea of what we can place our hope in exactly. Please tell people about the podcast, rate and review us if you haven't, share links to the podcast on social media, and encourage other people to listen. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas and God bless.